Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? Swell? Some of you are doing good. One person is doing swell. Uh, my name is Josh. Um, I remember some of you from last spring. I don't know if, if you remember me. It doesn't really matter. But uh, we talked about Lent together. It was really fun, and I'm super glad to be back here. So Mark chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 30, beginning at verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. This uh, story in the Gospels is, uh, is, is um, it's kind of funny because, um, now it's, the content's very serious of what Jesus is saying. Not, maybe not funny, maybe the word is awkward. It's, it's awkward. Because you, you, did you catch what happened? Jesus was teaching them about like laying down his life. You know, everything we think of as Jesus, like true love, sacrificial love, uh, the person of love himself, love come down from heaven. This is what love means. And he catches them in the midst of a moment when they're arguing about who is the greatest, right? Super awkward. If the disciples did the awkward turtle thing, that would be the moment when they would do it. Jesus would just look at them with the awkward turtle or the awkward fish as we did in college I don't know if you guys do the awkward animals or not, but no. Never heard of the awkward turtle? Yeah, some of you. So very awkward moment, right? And suddenly in the midst of their awkwardness, Jesus sort of like brings this deep, profound teaching about really what it means to be a Christian, certainly about what he's come to earth to do. Um, and it's, he's gonna teach them about ambition, Ambition. So that's what we're going to talk about, ambition. Mark chapter 9. There's a doctor a number of years ago named Kent, Kent Brantley. I bet you know this story, some of you. And he was a medical missionary with the Samaritan's Purse. And what he's famous for is, Dr. Brantley, is deciding to stay in Liberia where he was serving with his family, to stay in Liberia um, even though a deadly Ebola outbreak had happened. Do you remember news stories about this guy? And an article for, for Time Magazine uh, short, shortly after, when he was safe and things were okay, um, this is what he wrote about being a missionary, uh, a doctor missionary, a, mis uh, a doctor for Jesus, and deciding to stay in the midst of this, this hellish uh, illness. Uh, for the sake of other people. He wrote this. The morning I woke up with Ebola, I felt a little bit like hot, warm. My temperature was 100, so higher than normal, but not too concerning, he said. And even with the bad news, this, this, the, the, I've, I've got Ebola, I think. I felt calm. Um, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't even cry when I called my wife and said, uh, Amber, my test is positive. I think I have Ebola. The, the rest of my family was weeping though, right? Because Ebola is a death sentence. Ebola is a death sentence. So he, he says, you know, God blessed me with a peace that surpasses understanding that first morning. Um, he said, since we had, and this is what he wrote in the Time Magazine article, 
Since we had started treating patients who had Ebola, we had only one survivor. So imagine when he saw the test for himself. I mean, this is his, oh, this is, everyone wonders how am I gonna die? This is how I'm gonna die, right? Only one survivor. I'd watched too many people die from this disease and uh, Amber, my wife and I were both at the disadvantage of knowing how this ends. It's a humiliating disease, he says, that strips you of your dignity, Ebola. You're removed from your family and you're put into isolation, like, a, like an isolation booth, the bed, hospital bed. And you can't even see the faces of the nurses and doctors who are caring for you because they have protective suits. To think how, uh, talk about stripping you of your dignity and humanity everything around you becomes this like robotic medical experience. Like you've been removed from the face of humanity, right? You can only see the eyes of the people caring for you through their suits. You have uncontrollable bathroom trips and it's embarrassing. You have to rely on others to clean you up. Um, he said, we tried our best to treat patients who were in this place, like they were our family. And even so, even through our protective gear that we had on, he said, um, we spoke to each patient, we called them by name and we touched them. We wanted them to know that they were valuable, that they were loved and that we were there to serve them. That, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is a Christian right there. He was a Christian doctor, but he was a Christian. That's how Christians think about people who are sick, right? Not long in, uh, after the news erupted in the States that there was an American doctor who was uh, serving as a missionary and he had decided to stay, one of the kind of political pundits and probably someone that uh, conservative Christians would even admire, it was quite surprising to hear her say this, she called his decision idiotic. She said, that's an idiotic thing to do, to stay. He sent his family home, he decided to stay. So let me ask you as a group of Christians, is it idiotic? Is it idiotic? To take your extremely expensive medical education and your role as a dad and your role as a husband to Amber, to take all of this, you know, your health and your safety, to, to take all of this and then just to spend them, to spend them almost like, with, with idiocy on someone else. Is, is, that, is that idiotic? Is that idiotic? It's interesting. On, especially on, on victims of Ebola who will probably, as his uh, statistics had told him, will probably die regardless of whether you treat them, right? It seems idiotic in the economy of this world. I, I grant you that. But in the deepest sense, brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be Christian, right? This is what it means to be Christian. So call us idiots or whatever you want, but we are Christians. This is what we do. In this Mark's gospel, the story of Jesus teaching his disciples, he's teaching them about ambition, about Christian ambition, about true ambition, and in short, he teaches them and, and us uh, vicariously about the ambition of God. Did you know that God was ambitious? God is a lot of things that we don't have words for, 
So ambition's probably not a great word to describe God, but it's the best we've got. He was so ambitious that he came to rescue us, right? So he's ambitious. That's, that's a good way for us to try to think about him. The ambition of God, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who then directed and aimed all of that same infinite creative power and energy and drive and aspiration and desire and infinite wisdom and love, all of that, he, he spoke into existence, the world, all of that he directed toward us, toward lifting us out of our own Ebola of sin, so to speak, right? The same God who created the heavens and the earth was ambitious, not just to create it, but to rescue it, his creation. So today, tonight, Jesus teaches us about Christian ambition, Christian ambition. I wanna make three observations um, about this story. First, the context of Christian ambition and the coach of Christian ambition and the content. I grew up as a Baptist, so I'm, I know how to alliterate in my sermons. So the context, the coach, and the, the content, just to help you hang your hat on it to remember, okay? This is Christian ambition. Look at Mark 9 with me. First, here's the context of Jesus' teaching, the context of his teaching. And that is literally, I literally mean the context, like the geography. Notice in that passage, look down with me at it. Mark gives us two geographical markers. This is the part of a gospel story where if you're not a, a well, even if you are a student of the scriptures and you, uh, you've got maps in your Bible, you still gloss over because cities and places are thrown around and they don't necessarily have a lot of, they don't carry a lot of immediate meaning for us. But look what Mark tells us, two geographical markers for top of the passage. Jesus and his disciples passed through where? Where does it say? Passed through where? Yes, not a trick question. Galilee, yawn, right? Next paragraph, look, look down at the next paragraph. Then they came to where? Capernaum, you see that? First Galilee, then Capernaum, two big yawns from American readers. We, we don't know what those cities mean. Let me, let me just cut to the quick of it. Rather than have you sort of try to make a mental map of these places, here's the point. Mark mentions, Mark's gospel, by the way, is really action focused. It's like, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Jesus did that, then he went here, then he healed this person. So, so everything has lots of meaning like this. So he gives us these two geographical markers, and here's what he's trying to say. Mark mentions these places because it tells the readers where Jesus is on his journey. Jesus has a journey, and let me ask you, it's not a trick question, you know the answer to this, where does his journey end? Where? Where? Yes, cross, Jerusalem, right? Uh, uh, Calvary. That's the end of his journey, the telos, the purpose of his journey, right? So he's going to Jerusalem. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. If you just zoom out of Mark's gospel and think about the whole story, Mark is telling us how Jesus got to Jerusalem, right? So when he says he, uh, uh, they passed through Galilee and then they came to Capernaum, this is what Mark's saying. Jesus took one step closer to his death. That's the point. That's why he lists these places. He wants us to know where Jesus is on his journey because he's going somewhere and it's to the cross, it's to Jerusalem. So those are markers for us. You could say it this way. Uh, 
Jesus took one very ambitious step closer to the cross. Jesus was driven to Jerusalem. Jesus had ambition, desire, drive, motivation. It wasn't for himself. It was to rescue you and me. So he passed into Galilee and then to Capernaum, one step closer to Jerusalem. That's the context. Here's the second observation, the coach. Jesus is like a coach for ambition. He's a coach. He's a teacher, but he's not just any kind of teacher. Um, uh, let me ask the patience for uh, some of you as I use a sports analogy, okay? I don't know if there are sports fans here. Um, for those of us who follow the, the National Football League, it's, it's been a fun season for a lot of different reasons. One of them, though, is, uh, is that uh, a famous guy named John Gruden— or any of, does that name ring a bell? Has has stepped out of the uh, announcers' boxes. He would he would he was the guy up in the up in the box on TV, like being the expert on football and telling you, well, this is why they did that, and this is why they did that, and oh, that was such a dumb play for the coach to call because they fumbled the ball or whatever. Now this season, John Gruden has stepped onto the field and he's the coach of the Raiders, and they suck, by the way. So. <laughs> Um, he, he, he's no longer like the Monday morning quarterback. And he's kind he's a bit of a cocky guy. Just, I, I think that everyone would agree with that. So um, I actually am a big fan of John Gruden because he's really entertaining to listen to and watch. Um, but he get, people give him a really hard time because he, he really does come across like he knows exactly what every quarterback and coach and running back and linebacker should do, right? Now he's on the field and it's not going so well. He's not in the commentary box anymore, waxing eloquently about the games. He's coaching a team in real time and real space and real place. He's not removed from the mess. Now he's in the middle of the mess. I can't help but think of this as Mark tells us about Jesus teaching Because what we're not hearing in Mark's gospel here, as Jesus teaches his disciples and us about ambition, we're not hearing someone remotely teaching on ambition. Let me tell you how to be a great human being and so forth and so on. Not even a, let me tell you and teach you about sacrifice and what you need to know about sacrifice. No, because this is the part of the story where Jesus says, I'm gonna teach you something and it's about what I'm going to do which is I'm gonna give up myself, right? The son of man is to be betrayed, you see that in the passage? Into human hands and they will kill him and three days after being killed, he will rise again. See, here's the thing, Jesus isn't just, isn't just a, a good teacher. He is also his own object lesson, right? He's not just our example, he's the one by whose death we are empowered to do what he says. It's all of the above. He's not just remote from us. He's in the mess. In fact, him getting in the mess makes it possible for us to get out of the mess. You see? So that's what he's teaching them. It's like, look at me. Look at what I'm about to do. What I'm about to do is lay down my life for you. Um, We know that he's teaching here because... um, he has this object lesson. Did you see that in the passage? Look at the passage again. Here's a question, uh, observation question. Who or what is the object lesson 
in Jesus' teaching. Look over that passage. Who or what is the object lesson? He sits down, so he assumes the posture of a teacher. How about I sit and you guys stand while while I teach? Is that, no, that would not, that would not work. But that's how it was for him. He sits, he's got the authority, he's gonna teach. And then what does he do after he sits down? Does it say? Anybody guesses? There will be no shame. Yes, and well, he he called a child to him, right? He put a child in front of them. See that? It's sort of like, here's going to be what ambition looks like. It's It's this child. So he pulls a child into the mix like an object lesson and he's sitting down so he's going to teach them. The point of his teaching is his own life and death. He is teaching but he's teaching about himself. This is exactly what Paul writes in Philippians 2. You know this passage. Christ Jesus, who is, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, like a truly great coach, gets on the field in the mess, letting go of his safety, his status in heaven, and he teaches his students, his players, what uh, life is all about. Ambition, Christian ambition. It's his life. If you ever get lost in your life and you want to know, what do I do? What should I choose? Who should I choose to marry? Where should I choose to work? How should I use my gifts? It is never ever wrong for Christians to look to the cross. That is your true north. So Jesus does this with the disciples. Look at me. Now, I particularly mention this point because um, about Jesus as teacher and coach and that he is his object lesson because um, world religions, like even a cursory study of world religions and philosophy or whatever, religious history, would show like every religion Every religion talks about uh, the importance of serving others. And so whenever we read any scripture, we need to ask as Christians, like, what makes us Christian, right? Not just like a, uh, um, not like an object lesson we might get at the YMCA on a Thursday night or something, or that we would get from some other uh, religious meeting. What makes it Christian? Uh, simply put, it's this. Our God In Christ, the Christian God was not just another great teacher. He got on the field himself. Listen to the uh, comments of other world religious leaders, like Gandhi saying, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. That sounds very uh, good, doesn't it? Uh, From the Quran, O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you've been raised to serve others. Humanism, even humanism, uh, the belief that there's no such thing as a supernatural, just, just, just the physical stuff, and we're, uh, we serve others because we want to be better people. It teaches that the whole point of like science and progress and all of that is that the human race is going to better itself, you know? So everybody agrees on this in world religions. Here's the difference. Our God got down on the field 
and enacted it. He did it. Our God did not just teach us it's good to do this, that, or the other thing. He lived it with his own life, all right? He's the coach. So the the place, the context, he's one step closer to Jerusalem. He's the coach, different from every world religion. And then here's the content of the teaching. He brings the child in, there's an object lesson. He sits down, he's gonna teach. And what does he teach? It probably won't surprise you to know that the content of Jesus' lesson on true ambition is different from what's caught, you know, taught in the world around us. Um, but here's what might surprise you. It's how it's different. It's how it's different. Christian ambition, Jesus says, is not different in its force or its effort or its drive or its strength or its energy. Now think about this. This is a bit of a nuance. It's not different in its force or ambition or strength or energy drive. That's not how it's different. It's different in its direction and its aim. Another way to say it is it's different in its motivation, its end. So think about it. Christian ambition, like normal ambition, it's a striving, it's a working, it's a, a, a stretching, a trying, not for oneself. It's the same amount of energy as everybody else is putting into whatever it is they want to do. But what we want to do as Christians, what Jesus did for us is he used all of that power for another, for you and me, right? So Christians don't uh, just, they, we, we aren't wimps, see? We, we, we don't not try. We're not uh, lazy. We work really, really hard, just as hard as every, this, could, this is a, a particularly important point if what you've heard a lot of in your life is that grace means like you've heard an incorrect understanding of grace. If you've been taught that grace means you kind of just get to be like spiritually lazy or something. I'm not suggesting that you have been taught, but um, it can sound offensive to us when we think about working out our salvation, like being driven for Jesus, right? It can be like, ooh, I don't know. That sounds like we're working your, for your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. Christians, like every other religion, we work hard for what we believe in, but our aim is completely different. It's not to make our own names great. It's to make the name of Jesus great. So if you read this story quickly, you might be tempted to say, well, you kind of kind of misunderstand the role of the child. Um, have, you ever, have, have you ever heard this passage in particular taught like, Hey, look, Jesus put a kid in, the, in, the, in front of everybody as his object lesson. And so he said, to be ambitious as a Christian is to be like this kid, right? Small, weak, like a kid, you know? No, that's not the point, is it? It's not that you're weak and helpless. See, this child is weak and helpless human. This is what it looks like to be ambitious. No, Jesus says, receive this child. Like, serve this helpless one who can't pay you back and who isn't even aware of the power games that adults play. Kids just like to be kids, right? So if your ego is involved in helping a kid, guess who's going to miss out on the subtext? The kid, right? You hold a candy in front of a kid, like my daughter Daphne, it doesn't, if it's me and her mom sort of vying for her attention, she will take both pieces of candy, thank you very much. It's not, right, it's, there's not, no one's gonna win, right? Kids don't, they miss that whole thing. Jesus says, 
here's a child. Um, he's, he's not aware, audience, of your power games and your own, like, your own trying to climb up the religious ladder or the business ladder or the popularity ladder. Kid, that kid doesn't care at all about that. So just, just serve the kid, receive the kid. That's what ambition looks like. And Christian ambition is serving those who can't serve you back. Christian ambition is, dare I say it, being taken advantage of for the sake of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, I despise being taken advantage of. Uh, in customer service situations where I think someone, like, I don't know why I think this, but I, like, I, I do have a little bit, I live with the sense of like, the, the, the restaurant world is out to get me or something. I don't know. By the way, they're not. I, I just, it's just my own mental illness. But, um, but I despise being taken advantage of. So that very much rings true to me. Uh, uh, our church in downtown Orlando, we're in, in a part of the city. Uh, we have this big, we have this gorgeous cathedral building. And uh, you know what people like to do with cathedrals is they like to get married in them, right? And we, we have like certain rules about like you have to be a baptized Christian and so on. And usually as the pastors, we want to know you if you're coming to get married in our church. So we ask that you come and come to church and help us get to know you. We pre premarital counseling, all this stuff. But um, there's a sense in which uh, people do try to, uh, they'll come, they'll come to church and then they'll get married and then we'll never see them again. Um, and uh, in our church, for the staff especially who have to put all the weddings on, that is not very cool, you know? <laughs> because at first it's like, they're, we're like, oh yeah, this is what we do. Churches do weddings and we want to, we'd, wedding is like, marriage is God's thing, right? So if you want to you do God's thing, um, it's gonna be really hard. Are you sure you wanna do it? Okay, you do, then we'll help you do it, Right? And we'll teach you about it. And we'll teach you about, and then you leave and it's sort of like, wait a minute, we spent all this money as a church and all, these, all, all this time, paper, uh, organization, et cetera, et cetera. You're taking advantage of us. Shivari chairs, this is not right, you know? Um, that is like, yes, that's the gospel. One of the, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about as we're rather new pastors to this church and over a long, it's a really old church, we're trying to cast a vision for, we're not out to be taken advantage of, but, but yes, we want to love people so well that if they do choose to leave, we will, we will give them a hug on their way out and say, can't wait to see you again. Um, so glad that you decided to do God's thing called marriage. When you get into a big fight, please come back. We will help you with that as well, you know? Here's the question for you. Whatever stage of life you're in, so I wonder what, when you hear the word ambition, what is it that you're, this is a good way to discern this, what am I striving for right now in life? What am I striving for? That would be a good like journal homework question. What am I striving for? Is it a mate? Is it a date? Uh, is, it, uh, is it a job? Is it a career? Is it healing in your family? Is it a physical healing, some kind of illness? What are you striving for? What are you striving for? 
And how does that connect with the Christian view of ambition, with the God who exerted all of this energy for the sake of us, right? Uh, If in the end of your journaling, you've got a bunch of uh, 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 mumbling and writing and it's like guilt-driven and shame and you have gone astray, that is not the gospel message because there's joy in what Jesus does, right? There's joy in being the son of man who goes to be betrayed. Um, There's joy in what Kent Brantley did to stay with the Ebola patients. There was fulfillment, not happiness. Definitely not happiness. It's not happy to get Ebola or to be nailed to a cross because joy is completely different, right? There's fulfillment. There's something that lines up with God's universe. That's joy. That's fulfillment. That's Christian ambition. So I think about your stage of life, dating, marrying, learning, careering, whatever, however, Jesus is saying this, as you embark on this next phase of life, don't look to gain something for yourself. Don't look to to make your name great. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter will do that for you, right? Don't look to make your name great. Whatever you do, no matter how what you think is unrelated to the gospel you may think it is, do it in Jesus' name. Do it and be taken advantage of doing it because you're doing it in Jesus' name. Do it and then say, you could have some more if you want. The content of Jesus' teaching on ambition is not that Christian ambition is weak or void of passion and drive. It's, it's that Christian ambition is dedicated to serving for the sake of Jesus' name. So Kent Branley, the missionary doctor at the end of his ordeal, um, he, he wrote this, he wrote this. I finally cried for the first time when I saw my family members through a window and spoke to them over the intercom. Um, I hadn't been sure that I would ever see them again. And when I finally recovered, the nurses excitedly helped me uh, leave the isolation room and I held Amber in my arms for the first time in a month. Even when I was facing death, I remained full of faith. I would suggest to you when he's saying faith, you should think joy, fulfillment. I did not want to be faithful to God all the way up, serving him in Liberia for 10 months only to just give up at the end because I got sick, he writes. So contrary to that political commentator, uh, Dr. Brantley's Christian ambition was anything but idiocy, right? It was in lockstep with Dr. Brantley's God, our God, the God of the Bible who left heaven to teach Dr. Brantley about ambition. Using words from Dr. Brantley that we quoted earlier, God came in Jesus to speak to us to call us by name in the midst of our Ebola sickness and to to touch us in the midst of our sickness. Why? Because God wanted to show us that we were valuable to him, that we were loved by him, and that he was here to serve us. This is Christian ambition to which we're called. Aren't you thankful that Jesus was ambitious for your soul? Let's pray.
God, teach us, open our eyes, help us to know what we're striving for. Uh, For those who lack passion and drive, Lord, give them energy to serve you. For those of of us who are serving, serving, serving and exhausted, uh, give wisdom and insight to know how it's not really sacrifice. Maybe just to take a break. Most of all, give each of us tonight, even tonight, God, we ask you humbly, give us a new picture of Jesus' ambition for us that it would feel only joyous to live that way for other people and help us to change the world and bring your kingdom in doing so. We know that you want this even more than us. And so we ask it with boldness and we ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.